So Psalm 139 is interesting because I just figured this out. I usually confuse the fact that Psalm 139 is in the back of the psalm that it's actually written really late. When actually, if you look at it, Psalm 139 was written right before David became king of Judah, king of Israel. So it's interesting when we figure out that he writes this and literally he's like, okay, I'm king. Now what? God, you have brought me here. And this is the first thing he's asking. This is the first thing he says. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar and you search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in. And he just goes on and he goes on and he goes on. So God knows David really well. And we know that God had planned for David to be king. Is anyone familiar with the life of David? Anybody? Cool. So, anybody like reality TV? Just really bad TV. David's life is the equivalent of a really bad reality show. Basically, the whole life of David is pretty much a rated R movie. I'm just going to say that. Like, I can't really go into detail, but it's horrific. It's a war story, family issues, the whole nine. And most of them are caused by David. They're because of David's passivity. They're because of David's jealousy. They're because of David's anger. They're all because of him. So I find it incredibly interesting that, he's, that he is going to God and says, God, you know me. From the very beginning, before David even was established as king, God knew the heart of David. But God still decided to place him as king over everything. It wasn't because David was qualified, because guess what? David was a shepherd. He tended sheep. That's what he did. It wasn't because he was this, all of a sudden this great leader out the gate. It took, a, it took a while for David to become the David that we put on a pedestal. When reality, David was a very broken man. And God knew that. I think a lot of us equate being ready for anything that God asks us to do and expect us to be right there. When that is so not the reality. And we believe that the only way that God will be close is if we do the right thing. We believe that God is a distant father who loves us when we have it together, who calls us when we have it together, who puts us in places when we have it together. But God placed David where he was before he ever had it together, and he knew David's heart before he even put him there. He knew David's issues before he put him there. He knew the things that David was going to do before he put him there. It's obvious here in, in the first couple of verses of Psalm, of Psalm 139. But the truth is, so that's what the world wants us. That's what we like to think, that God is always distant. But the reality is that God is a loving father, like I said earlier, who knows what we're going through and is with, and is with us the entire time. So let's just, I'm going to chop this up. I'm going to go piece by piece, Right? And we're just going to walk through this. And there's a couple things I want you guys to take out of it. So we're going to start verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my life. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word 
is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So the first thing I want you guys to take away from this is that God is a person who is holistically loving despite our flaws. Think about that. There's something beautiful about God knowing us completely, but at the same time, there is something oddly uncomfortable. Like when our parents used to use Santa Claus, say, Santa's watching, and all of a sudden we were kind of like snap in place, like, oh God, like I'm not going to get anything if I act up, so I'm just going to, I'm going to be good, I'm going to do the right thing, and everything's going to be okay, there's going to be presents on December 25th, and everything's going to be all good. I'm going to act one way here, but in here, there's a whole bunch of mess going on. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on in here, right? Perfect example. When you're driving, right, and somebody cuts you off. I'm going to be honest. I think... Let me just back up. Driving is a sanctification process for me, where it's like... Someone cuts me off, for example, this huge garbage truck cut me off today, and it just smelled awful. I didn't say anything, but in my head, I was like, Jesus, I just want you to sm- like, just smite them like right now, right? I-, I want destruction, fire, like bring back Exodus, like I want all of this to happen. I didn't say anything, but in my head, that was anger, right? Bad breakup. I don't wish anything evil on them, but my heart is really jacked up right now. I want justice, right? Guys in high school, pretty girls everywhere. On the outside, it might be good, but on the inside, there might be some rough stuff going on. Girls, same thing. You might see a girl that has something that you want, but you want to tear down her image, so you start saying things creating lies in your head. God knows that stuff. He sees all of that. But here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. He still comes close. Right? He still comes close. He still engages. He still comes down. He didn't withhold Jesus because because he didn't see all of our, he wasn't surprised by our sin. He wasn't surprised when he looked at David and he's like, He's going to steal that man's wife, and then he's going to send him to the front lines, and he's going to have him murdered, and then there's going to be all this family drama, and he's, that whole thing is going to blow up in his face. I'm going to withhold mercy. No, it's not what God does. God knows everything about us, but still yet he engages. He still comes down. He still draws close. He still moves in because of his grace and his mercy and his goodness, and he proves it with Jesus Christ later by even bringing him down in the first place to become sin on our behalf so that we could be in right standing with him, right? And we see this play itself out um, in John 4. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to turn there for us um, really quickly with the um, story of the woman at the well. Anybody familiar, right? So Jesus, strolling with his, strolling with his boys, the disciples, right? And this woman comes, is, is coming to get water in the middle of the day. 
So that says that her past is jacked up. Jesus calls her out. He even says, yeah, you've had four husbands, and the one that you have right now is not your husband. Knows her completely. Does not even allow her to, to run away from it. But what does Jesus do? He asks her for a cup of water. He doesn't run away. He doesn't move back. There's racial issues here. There's economic issues here. There's um, gender issues here. Men didn't really talk to women, especially not a Samaritan woman. There's so many things that Jesus could use because of the culture to not engage this woman, but instead, he's like, yeah, I know your heart and I know your past. But instead, he shares himself with her. And that so transforms her life that she runs and shares it with everybody she knows. My friends, there are things in your heart and in my heart that we instinctively hide with shame and performance that Jesus desires to enter into. The real question is, is are, you, are we going to trust him enough to a point where he can say, I know every word you've ever thought and ever said. I know every action you thought about doing that you didn't do. I know that thing you want to do next week. I still love you. And if that's not it, he's like, I know that heartache you went through in high school. I know the stress that you're going through to get into college. I know that family issue that no one wants to talk about, but secretly it's eating you away. I know all about that, and I want to engage. I want to step into that. I came for that purpose. I didn't come for the people who are all put together, right? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees all the time. He's like, no, I'm going to come, and I'm going to be friends. I'm going to eat with people who don't have it together, who make mistakes. I'm going to call tax collectors and zealots to be my disciples and follow me. Fishermen, those are the people he engages with, and those are the people that he holistically knows. He knows everything about them, good, bad, or indifferent, and he just sits in it because he's that good and that gracious and that merciful to to even think that someone that holy and that perfect would ever want to come down and sit with us is beautiful. And that's what he does. We are all individually at our own wells, hiding from something, but God is just like, what's up? Almost fell off the stage. He's like, what's up? I know about that. I know what you said. I know what you're thinking. I know what's hurting you. I'm here for that. I came here and died for all of that. Let's sit and talk about it. Right, so that's the first thing. God holistically loves us despite our shortcomings, despite our hurts. That's where the real comfort of this passage comes from. It's like, yes, God knows. But what does he know? He knows everything, everything about you. The hair's on your head, and you are precious to him. And he wants to engage in what's going on in your heart. So the next thing that I want to talk about is this. God is intimately present despite our shortcomings. 
for me, I really, I'm introvert by nature. I am, I like being alone, not feeling lonely. So a lot of my hurt and my pain that I felt in college really came from feeling that I cannot relate to anybody, right? That everyone clicked up and everyone was good and everyone had their friends and everybody was dating. Kind of sounds like high school all over again, like it was awful. Um, I felt a lot of that in my freshman, sophomore year of high school, actually. I spent the whole morning of my first day of high school looking for my Spanish class. No, no friends, just in plus, I was kind of, I was overweight then, and I was just, I had glasses, like, it was, there was no self-confidence here whatsoever, so I'm like this new kid walking into school, backpack, like, all the way hiked up with, like, a map, just, like, walking around everywhere, trying to find my Spanish class, ended up being in the trailers, like, towards the back of the classroom, towards the back of the school, and I think every time I felt alone in college, or I feel alone now, part of me goes back to feeling like that kid in high school where it's just like, I'm alone in this. I'm alone in that hurt, in that shame I was talking about in the first couple verses. I'm back in that place where I'm in deep need of grace and mercy and there's no one around me who is willing to extend that towards me, right? But then, but God, which I think are the most beautiful words in the entire Bible, says this in verse 7, which is just amazing. He goes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Where am I going to go? Where can I go where you're not there, is what David is saying. Like, you're everywhere. You're always with me. I'm going to get caught up in that. Hold on. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. So in the highest of highs, in the most beautiful places, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the bad place. I'm, I'm in new territory, so I'm going to try and behave the best of my ability. There's some other things I could share there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In my highest of highs and the most beautiful of places, mountaintop experiences, we talk about that all the time after conferences, right? We come back and we have this spiritual fervor and it's awesome. And God feels like he's right there in our midst and everything is great. Fighting sin, fleeing from it. Everything's great. Friends are awesome. Everything has butterflies and rainbows attached to it. Like we're in the best of places. But then if I make my bed, if I am intentionally in where I shouldn't be, you are there also. In the worst possible scenarios, you are there. There was a two-year time in college where I was probably in some of the darkest places of my entire life. My junior year specifically, I remember being with my roommate Dylan, he was mentoring me at the time, and I was about to go to class, and something just kind of felt like it hit me in the gut and told me to go back inside. And I go back inside, and Dylan's taking a nap, because I guess he just didn't have class that day, or he didn't care, I don't know which one. But I sat down, and he kind of like woke up and rubbed his eyes. And I sat down, and I was like, I'm literally on the verge of tears. And he goes, I said, hey, man, 
do you ever feel like everything you've ever believed in is a lie? It was the only sentence in question that I, this was, this was literally the darkest place I'd ever been. And God sovereignly put Dylan in my life to say, yeah. And I just broke. Because Dylan was older than me by, by I think, a year. He had been walking with the Lord for, since high school or since his freshman year of college. And he goes, yes, I have. Because what that said to me is like, okay, God was present in his darkest moment. God was there in his darkest moment. Which means he will be in my darkest moments. He will be when I am running away. He'll be there when I'm sitting close and my Bible is open. He'll be, he'll be there when I'm just in the thick of it. He's going to be there. But we think that when we mess up, he all of a sudden just backs out. He's like, I want nothing to do with that. But Jesus was the man who touched lepers. The untouchable, hung out with prostitutes, hung out with sinners, tax collectors, who were worse than sinners at that point because they were disobeying their own people. That's who he, that's who he engaged in. Guys, what we cannot do, right, is attach our identity to shame because we mess up. We can't do it. But also, we can't attach our identity to pride when everything's great. It is by the grace of God that he is working things in our lives and that he is near to us in the middle of everything. It's because he is that caring and that engaged and he is that good. So do Do you believe that God is with you in the worst of moments? Because David has some pretty bad ones. And God knew those bad ones were coming. And yet David still, God was still in them. Where do you think God goes when you make mistakes? Because it says right here, if I dwell or make my bed in Sheol, you were there. David is so convinced of the presence of God in everything that he, in his worship, asks, where can I go and you are not there? Where? There's nothing, there's no place that I can escape and you are not there. God has been there in the beginning and he's never going to go anywhere. So let's pick this back up because I don't know what's my time like. Sweet, thank you. That's all I need to know because there's no clock so I can't gauge what's going on. Pick up in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How many of us in here feel like they are fearfully and wonderfully made every single day? Like, I'll be honest today. I, got a, I went to the gym, went home, had breakfast with my wife. Wife went to work. I went to a meeting. Well, even before I went to the meeting, I went in my closet and got dressed. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to put on my Jordans today. And I laced them on. I was like, man. 
I'm just be straight with you. I was like, I feel good. I'll put it on Instagram and everything. It's like, I feel good. Right? We don't have those days every day. No? I would say for me, recently, I've probably had about three days out of the past two weeks where I just woke up in the morning and just felt blessed. It was like, nothing can touch me. I feel great. I'm a David, fearfully and wonderful maid. I got you. I'm right there. It's been about three of those. Not every day we believe that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, which goes back to what I said earlier. We cannot attach our shame to our identity. Because you were created by God, you automatically have dignity and worth. You are automatically fearfully and wonderfully made. And to, and to amplify that, God says, when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is yet to come. So in my mind, it's like I'm already created by God, have dignity and worth, saved, throw new creation, every, all my sins are forgotten, separated as far as the east is from the west, in Christ Jesus, crucified with him, created to do good works, just magnified. That is the truth of those who are in Christ. And it does not matter what Satan or the world wants to spit in your ear first thing in the morning when you hit the floor. You're like, you're worthless, right? Who hears that on a daily basis? Who, who hears, dude, remember that thing you did last week? I, I, for years, have heard the enemy try to condemn me for things I've done in my past. It's like, remember when you did that your junior year of college? What about that time when you were in middle school? What about that? And over and over again, in those dark moments, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm a new creation in Christ. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ because God on my behalf has stepped in and interceded for me. And he shows that in the cross. You are a new creation if you are in Christ Jesus. If there's anything you walk out with these doors tonight, I want you to grab onto that. You are a new creation. There is therefore no condemnation for you. There's nothing he can bring up in your life in Christ that God has not died for. There is nothing you can do without sin the cross. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I cannot beat that drum enough. Because he will, the enemy will constantly nag your ear and try to remind you. And you have to borderline spit in his face. And dude, back up. I'm a new creation. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. There's nothing you can say to me right now that God hasn't already died for. We have to remember that. We cannot attach shame to our identity because our identity is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in Jesus. And there's nothing you can do that God doesn't know about. Now I'm kind of retracking. There's nothing you can do that God doesn't know about that he has not already died for if you are in Christ. There's nowhere you can go where you can run away from him because he relentlessly pursues his children or, or patiently waits for them to come home. Right, Luke 15, look for the coin, look for the sheep, and wait for the son. He's either coming after you or he's waiting for you to come back. 
there's nowhere you can go to run away from him. And there's nothing that anyone can ever say to you that contradicts what Scripture already says to you. Scripture says you are fearfully and wonderfully made in a new creation, Jesus Christ. David so understands this that in verse 19, he says this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O man of blood, depart from me. Like, it's a weird transition. It's like, God's awesome. He knows me. He loves me. He's always there. God, go kill somebody. Like, it's like the weirdest transition, right? But we understand David wrote this when he became king, right? He's like, God, you know me. You know my weaknesses. You know my shortcomings. I trust that you are with me. I'm in so in love with you. I now hate what you hate. I don't like my sin. I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like that I'm running after these things. I don't like the shame that I'm wrestling with. I hate it. And he's asking God to do something about it. God is the one who will empower you to believe everything that Psalm 139 says. It's not going to be in tightening up because that's moralism. We don't, moralism will get you nowhere. But he, he will empower you to trust his grace and the knowledge of who you are. He will empower you to trust his presence. He will empower you to believe who you are in Christ. And he will go before you and fight your enemies. He will, I will fight your battles. All you have to do is be still and trust who I've told you to be, who, I, who you are in me. And then he finishes up with this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And David wraps it up and just, God, like, search me. If there's anything in me that's not of you, just cut it out. You know, you know me better than I know me. You know where I'm going to run away to. You know where I'm going to lie down. You know what I trust and not what I don't trust. God, please just search me. Help me love you. Because I'm not able to do it in my own strength. Which is why he gave us Christ. To remind us, you, you need me. I died for you. I love you. I'm the one who sits with those who nobody wants to sit with. I'm the one who heals. I'm the one who's gracious. I'm the one who's merciful. I'm the one who's good. I'm the one who kills sin. I'm the one who fights for you. I'm the one who hears you, who intercedes for you. I'm the one who's going to get you through this, who's going to sit with you in the darkest times, who's going to celebrate you through the best of times, who's always present, who has the most sober, understanding of who you are, but yet still became sin on your behalf to sit with you because he's that good. That is the God who knows you completely. The real question is, are we trying to hide from him? Because it's impossible. If, you're, if, if you in this room are trying to hide from him, in shame, in brokenness, or by performance, he's already made you out in the cross. He's already said, you need me 
in Jesus. Come out of shame because there's nothing you can hide from him. And there's nothing you can do and nothing you can say that will scare him or make him run away or make him love any, any less because that's who he is. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you're awesome. You are good and you are kind and you're amazing. And you know us completely. You have complete sober judgment of who we are. But yet you engage. You're present. You came down on our behalf for us because you were that awesome. Jesus, pull us out of our shame. Pull us into the light and help us confess. God, I pray over these students that they will remember that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. That does not matter what they've done. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the opportunity to become a new creation is always there in Jesus. I pray if they're hiding, that they will come into the light and, and follow you. It's your name I pray. Amen.